Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today was born in Gaul in Sri Lanka. He grew up in Colombo, the capital city, studied in New Zealand and has so far lived in Amsterdam, London and Singapore. Currently, he's based back in Sri Lanka, where he's joining me on Zoom. So there might be a few sound issues, but we hope to be able to straighten all of those out. He's written rock songs, screenplays, advertising and travel stories. He's been published in The Rolling Stone, GQ and National Geographic before publishing his renowned debut novel in 2010 called Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew. It's all about cricket, Sri Lankan politics and history, and it did phenomenally well. It won the Commonwealth Prize, the DSC Prize, and uh, established the writer as one of Sri Lanka's foremost authors. The long-awaited follow-up is The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. It was published in April this year, and it's just been long-listed for the 2022 Booker Prize. It's a funny, searing satire. It tells the story of Mali Almeida, who is a closeted photographer and gambler who wakes up dead in 1990 Colombo. Well, the guest is, obviously, I'm sure you've worked out, Sheehan Karuna Tilaka. Welcome to Meet the Writers, Sheehan. Hi, Georgina. Thanks for having me. Now, your first book really brought you to the attention of the world. But for those who haven't yet discovered you, I want to go right back to the beginning and just talk about your childhood in Sri Lanka at really what was a very troubled time for the country. Yeah, I grew up in Gaul and in Colombo, and um, yeah, I was eight years old when 1983 happened, so um, the riots that started off the 30-year war. And yeah, I basically grew up around curfews and uh, bomb blasts and assassinations, and that was really the backdrop to everything. I did, as you mentioned, um, then family migrated to New Zealand around 1990, and uh, yeah, I finished my studies over there. Uh, but yes, I've lived... I've, moved back here and I've lived here through the end of the war and through the last decade. And so we've seen a lot, we've seen a lot. Um, the book that I wrote, the second book that you mentioned, The Seven Moons, that was based around 1989, which I thought at the time was the darkest period in Sri Lankan history. And I could, I could barely remember it as a teenager, but later when I researched the novel, I went back to that and it's pretty well documented. And that was a time where we had a civil war we had a, a Marxist uprising down south. Uh, we also had the Indian army with boots on the ground. And um, yeah, there were a lot of bodies turning up on the road when you're walking to school and this was like normalized. And I, I just remember those memories, not quite understanding what was going on, but just seeing the anxiety in my parents' faces. Um, so that's the period I wrote about. And the war ended in 2009, and we all thought that, okay, now nothing can hold this beautiful country back. But then here we are now, 12 years later. And I, I wouldn't say it's, it's worse than 1989, because 1989 was a time of profound violence and, and terror. Uh, now we just have a much more slow-burning crisis. But um, yeah, anyway, plenty of conflict for novelists to, to, to build stories on, that's for sure. Of course, you weren't always a novelist. Your first writing was in advertising. Yes, and I still, I still have my day job, so that's correct. I, um, I began as a copywriter. Um, I think every copywriter in an ad agency back then had a, had a screenplay they were working on, had a novel, had a band they were doing, so I, I was no different that way. I had, after I'd finished working for clients, I'd, I'd go back home and write, yeah, write down stories. 
But yeah, Chinaman was written while I was still working full time at an ad agency. So I'd wake up at four in the morning and write this bizarre book about cricket and then go to work. And yeah, I still dip in and out of that world. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually writing a novel about that world at the moment. But yeah, that, that was the original gig. But then once Chinaman, once I realized I had like something that needed research, I did quit my job and spend a couple of years just, yeah, watching cricket matches and hanging out with drunk old men. And that's the result of that was Chinaman. And what's extraordinary about that book is that, it, in fact, it was self-published. You've got to realise I was writing in 2007, eight, and we didn't, we, we have Sri Lankan writers in English, but there wasn't a huge uh, publishing industry around it. So I wasn't expecting that this book would be read outside of Colombo. But I did think it was an interesting story, the idea that the greatest cricketer who ever lived happened to be unfortunate enough to be born in Sri Lanka and to be playing in 1985 when no one was following Sri Lankan cricket. And I just thought that that was an interesting, absurd premise in which to talk about, you know, a forgotten genius, lost potential, which all seem to be themes that really relate to the history of Sri Lanka. But when, yeah, when I wrote it, um, finished it, and it won the local degradation prize. But then after that, there was an assumption that foreign publishers were going to come and publish your work. So I did do the normal path that Sri Lankan writers in English go through, which is to self-publish it. But of course, I didn't give up on the idea. I, I did think that India might be interested in a cricket book about the subcontinent. So I did try to get publishers there. And it took a good year, I think. By the time it found a publisher, Chiki Sarka at Penguin picked it up. I'd already moved to Singapore, and I was, again, working in advertising. Um, but yeah, self-publishing was not uncommon then. And now we've had, uh, since Chinaman, we've had a lot of uh, local writers getting internationally published and, and um, yeah, being submitted for international awards. But that wasn't the case in the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah, so that was ju just seemed like a natural rite of passage that just to get the book out, uh, you had to self-publish it. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, rock career because you've been a bassist in several bands. Tell us about that. Um, again, ad guy who wants to do stuff, so I thought, yeah, writing novels takes years and takes a lot of skill. So yeah, I played in a few, few rock bands. I was the bass player, I was never the most uh, talented musically, and um, yeah, I still meet those guys, and there's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that, I, that we are going to form a midlife crisis band now and, and get back together, because there's plenty to write songs about in Sri Lanka at the moment. Um, but, you know, sadly, I still love music and I still live in a house full, full of guitars and pianos and drums. But uh, sadly, yeah, I didn't quite have the talent to, to match my ambition. So, yeah, I decided to write novels instead. And then we come to The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, which uh, has just, as we discussed, been longlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize. And just once again, for somebody whose first novel was self-published, this seems like an enormous achievement. Well, Seven Moons took a lot. Chinaman, I just kind of did it on a whim. And also I was a single guy living with my parents, so it just seemed like, okay to quit your job, it didn't seem like a responsible thing. But when Seven Moons, when the idea for it came along, I was married with two, uh, two toddlers, and so it made the writing a bit much more challenging. But I suppose I, I did know writing it that, unlike Chinaman, that it would find a publisher, that, I, that it was most likely that it would be read, which kind of adds pressure to it. But I guess the motivation for that was I was a bit tired of cricket. I'd, I'd written this cricket book, and I, I'm not anything more than a casual fan. Um, I mean, I, I was 
in my early 20s uh, uh, when Sri Lanka won the World Cup. So obviously the whole nation was taken up by that in 1996. So I followed Sri Lankan cricket, but I wasn't a cricket tragic. So I kind of researched that for a couple of years, wrote the book. But then I found like people turned to me expecting me to be authority on cricket. And there's plenty of authorities on cricket in Sri Lanka. And so to, to sort of avoid that, and I, I got a lot of offers to sort of write sports books or write a sequel and so on. So I thought the way to stop all these cricket assignments is to write something completely different. So I chose a ghost story, a supernatural thriller set in, uh, in 1989 that was, it was supposed to be more a satirical thriller, but I guess it turned out to be much more political than I thought. But yeah, the primary motivation was just to get away from cricket. Uh, and of course, you couldn't have foreseen at that point that Sri Lanka would once again be completely engulfed in, in political turmoil now. I mean, the book is so relevant considering everything that's going on in the country at the moment. Yes, I, I wrote, when I started writing, oh, well, I guess the first seeds were in the aftermath of the 30-year of the war. So after, when 2009 the war ended, it didn't end the conflict. There was a lot of debate about the civilians that died in that final stage of the war and a lot of numbers were thrown around um, and yeah, I've heard the number of 40,000 civilians were killed and there was a lot of debate about who killed them, right? Was it, was it the government shelling indiscriminately? Was it the Tamil Tiger terrorist group using them as human shields? And I, I was in Singapore watching this argument unfold on, on, a, on an iPad screen basically and watching the different, and the government did a, a Channel 4 did a film called The Killing Fields of Sri Lanka, which highlighted some shocking war crimes. The government did a counter-documentary. So it was the battle of the documentaries. And it's, it's then that I thought, I need to write, what if the dead could speak? Like, everyone's debating about how these people died. What if the dead were actually given to speak? What kind of story would they say? So that was my idea, but I was, I was a bit of a coward. I was thinking, I can't write about 2009. It's already, it was a dangerous time. People who were too outspoken were going missing and... Um, so I decided, okay, I'm going to write. It's not like Sri Lanka's been short of conflict. So I, I'll go back to my childhood, to 1989, which I remember as quite a dark period. And the advantage about writing about that, I could set my ghost story there, but um, all the protagonists and the antagonists were dead. And that period was well documented. So I thought I could write about it quite freely and not be afraid about who I was offending. So that's, I mean, that, that took the good part of a decade to finish. But yes, it happens to be that now it's about to be released. And we're, I, I, I still won't say it's worse than the dark days of the 80s because there isn't the widespread violence that was there. But yeah, I couldn't have foreseen that this would happen. A lot of people ask me, you know, is this, this must be good for a novelist that there's plenty of conflict and things to write about. And I, I always quote my friend and, and mentor, Mohammed Hanif, who was asked a similar question about Pakistan and saying, you know, I would rather have no stories to tell and a peaceful country and mediocre books than, than what we have now. But yeah, you're right. There's uh, now plenty to write about. I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, novels coming out about the economic crisis, about the Aragalaya, about sitting in petrol queues. There's plenty of stories here. But yeah, we, we've seen a lot in the last 30 years. Take us back and just explain, because I think people are very, very interested now in looking at the history of Sri Lanka, and not all of us here in the West are aware of exactly what did happen at that time. I mean, we're talking here about the, uh, the, the Tamil Tigers, the United National Party, the Special Task Force. If you could just tell us about those main movements that were influencing what happened in the 80s. 
Well, in a few sentences. <laughs> I did it in 300 pages, but I'll try, I'll try. Um, we're a Sinhalese majority country. So Sinhalese is, is the language uh, who are predominantly Buddhist, though you get Christians as well. But we have minorities as well. We have, uh, we have Muslims, we have Tamils, we have Burgers who are the descendants of the European colonizers. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying it here, but uh, in 1958, there was a I think, as we're seeing now, majoritarianism is an easy way to kind of win elections. So there was an appeal from the then prime minister to make the country Sinhala, Sinhala Buddhist only, and to make that the main, main form of instruction. And so obviously that alienated all the minorities in the country, and a lot of the Tamils and the Muslims and the Burgers migrated. But in the 70s, a few young Tamils got, um, got militant and formed formed many groups, but in the end, the group that outlasted everyone or, or overcame everyone was the LTT, the, the Liberation Tamils of, uh, Tigers of Tamil Elam. And uh, they were a militant group in the 70s, but things really, I mean, everyone tracks the beginning to 1983. In 1983, the Tigers killed 13 soldiers, and there was a huge backlash back in Colombo, where Tamil houses were burned, businesses were burned, people were killed on the streets, and there was um, nationwide curfew. And for for all through July, July 83, we call it Black July. Now we have two reasons to commiserate during July. So that, that's really, and that kicked off, I think the, the Tamil Tigers were a fringe group up till 83, but after that, they became, uh, they attracted widespread support and uh, the war proved to be uh, a stalemate for the next, next 30 years. And yes, yeah, so we lived through successive governments, there were peace talks and so on, but in the 80s, yeah, we had, um, we had suicide bombing in, in the capital. So I, I was living in Colombo, where, where I, I'm talking to you from. The war was raging up north in, in Jaffna and, and the east. But occasionally, yeah, we'd have, we'd have bombs going off, usually during when there was an international cricket team touring, and so that would attract the world's headlines. And um, yes, we grew up with that conflict until the late 2000s. The, the Rajapaksas, who the notorious Rajapaksas who were just evicted, they were elected and they vowed to end the war. And um, yeah, it, it went on for the late, to, yeah, from 2006 to 2009. And a lot of the foreign press were, were, were kicked out, the humanitarian organizations were kicked out. So we don't really know what happened, though it's well documented. But the war ended in 2009. So that, that's what we really lived through. But I think what happened afterwards is the, the winners of the war got quite triumphalist. And I think that's the tragedy here, which perhaps we'll write about in subsequent books, is that uh, there didn't seem to be any great learnings from this conflict. You'd think that after 30 years of war, we would unite as a united Sri Lanka. And that's another theme that came through in, Sri, in, in Chinaman, is that it's only on the cricket field that we're united. It's only on the cricket field that we don't worry about this nonsense, that we have a bowler called Muralidharan, who was a Tamil playing during the height of the war, but we didn't care because he took wickets. And so it's, it's almost like cricket was the unifier. So it, it is proof that Sri Lanka is capable of uniting. And that's what we saw in the, unite, the recent protests. They kind of suddenly, now that the whole country was in crisis, People forgot all these divisions and protested as one. So that's been, that's been the history, but I think after the end of the war, we had an opportunity to rebuild, and it just seems like, again, there were numerous cases of stoking anti-minority sentiment. This time it was against the Muslims, and that culminated in the Easter attacks of 2019, which again 
ruin Sri Lanka's tourist industry. So we've just been hurtling. I haven't even mentioned the tsunami. We've hurtled from the tragedy to disaster, some you know, unavoidable, but many of them completely self-inflicted. And um, yeah, that's apported the last 40 years in a few minutes. So, as you say, that, that's the background to it. Let's turn now to look at the main protagonist, who is actually dead. Yes, yeah, so um, bodies turning up in 1989 was a commonplace thing, but um, I think a few of the more famous ones were when, when people were killed from the middle class or the, the, the ruling class. And so three characters that I want to write about were Richard de Soisa, who was... Um, an abducted journalist uh, who, who was killed in 1989, Rajini Tiranagama, who was a Tamil moderate who was murdered by the Tamil Tigers. So it's not like there was, you know, and I, I make this point in the book, it's not like there were good guys and bad guys. That's why you can't really make a movie about this because everyone was, the Tamil Tigers may have had a worthy cause, but they were also turned out to be quite fascist. And, and so there was, I just thought, what if Richard DeSoyce and Rajini Tiranagama and also I had a third character based on a less known JVP activist, a Marxist activist called Daya Patirana. So I just thought, what if these three characters met in the afterlife? What kind of arguments would they have? And um, that was really the seeds for this. And um, then it sort of, I guess it, it evolved from there. So the characters of Mali Almeida, he was initially based on Richard de Soisa, but um, I think he moved on. And so he became a war photographer. So that's what, what he is in the book a war photographer who has seen unspeakable things on the battlefield and he finds himself dead and um, according to Sri Lankan or Asian mythology there is this theory that the spirit hovers around for seven days before so we have like alms givings throughout the first seven days at the wake and then on the seventh day we we have a big alms giving so the idea is that the spirit then moves on to where it's going so it just seemed like a good a good little conceit for a thriller that you have seven days, this guy has seven days to solve his own murder. And um, he, because he was a freelance war photographer, he shot carnage for all sides. So there was a number of people who would have wanted him dead. So that also allowed me to talk about the different parties that were involved in the conflict in 1989. But yeah, at the heart of it, it's a guy solving their own murder. And also he's, he's got a box full of photographs of all the atrocities of Sri Lanka hidden under his bed and he wants that to be seen because he believes that if those photographs were seen then maybe all the conflict uh, naively of course thinks that. So this, this is really the premise of the story. Guy solving his own murder and trying to find a way that his photographs get seen. Now um, he's also gay but not out. Tell us about the whole sexuality side of that and, and how important that is in Sri Lanka. So. I based it on Richard de Soisa. So Richard de Soisa wasn't a war photographer. He was a journalist, a newsreader, a theater artist. But he, yeah, he was also gay. And uh, also, I'm closeted gay is kind of, I think that's the only way you could have been gay in 1989. It wasn't like today. And so as the story, and the story has evolved over numerous drafts and over the years, Richard de Soisa kind of faded away and Mali Almeida became a character, but the only detail that remained was his sexuality. I don't know, I was a bit, towards the last few years, I was a bit wary whether I, you have permission to write from the point of view of a gay character being a cisgender, heterosexual male. But it just seemed like that was the idea that he led this double life also played into the plot, it play, deepened the character. So he would go on these 
dangerous assignments because he couldn't, he couldn't express himself sexually where he was living in Colombo, where people were watching him. So he would take these dangerous assignments so that he could a, uh, photograph what was happening but also engage, uh, engage in sexual activity. So that, it just seemed like that, this whole double life thing it tied into it. So, so I left it in there. I, I had to do, I had to make sure I did plenty of research about that time and I talked to many many gay men, friends and uh, acquaintances who were around in that time and told me about the difficulty. And this was also the 1980s, so um, AIDS had just come up and there was a lot of demonization of that community. And um, so yeah, I, I, I couldn't, that just seemed an integral part of Mali's personality. And it, it, it ends up informing the plot as well, because apart from what I outlined about him solving his murder and finding his photographs, he's also making amends with his, with his boyfriend and with his best friend, and so there's a, there's a human element to that as well, where he's sort of resolving those relationships. Is homosexuality still an issue in Sri Lanka now? Well, legally, according to the law, yeah, I mean, I don't think we've had, there is, look, it, it's not, you can be out of the closet, especially in Colombo, it's not gonna raise an eyebrow, but in terms of LGBTQ rights, I don't think we've advanced at all since the 80s, even though, I mean, it's, it's not a case that it is a homophobic society or that uh, uh, gay people are in danger, but still, there, there are no rights, and I think any attempts to bring these rights uh, to a political uh, platform has, has not been successful. So I would say it, it's perhaps that the stigma of the 80s, and that, that's a worldwide thing, I think. Now, the idea, it's, it's, it's not demonized, but I, I don't think there's a lot in the way of, of rights or, or legislature following that. So there's a long way to go in terms of that. But one thing at the Aragalea, we had a, we had a pride parade. And I don't recall us, I mean, we've had pride parades uh, here before, but they've always been, you know, at a certain club or a certain venue or in a closed atmosphere. On the street, this was, this is one thing about the, Ar sorry, I use this word Aragalea, it means struggle, but that, that's become the branding for this widespread protest movement. But it just seems that the, the younger generation who are helming that movement and who are taking all the risks, they seem a lot more inclusive than my generation or previous generation. So there have been marches for women's rights, for LGBTQ, for, for minority rights and so on. So this is the hope that we cling to, that even though we're still stuck with the same old men that got us in the, this problem in the first place, that perhaps at the next election there will be representatives of this new generation who can bring in these new values and bring in this idea of Sri Lankan-ness, of Sri Lanka being a country in itself rather than being divided into these minorities. Um, anyway, that's our optimism in, the, in these dark days. In, in the book, obviously, it's set beyond death and you've had to do what they call world building. You've had to establish a, a set of rules of, about how this, this other space works. You have the light, you have the helpers, you have to decide how much uh, your, your, your dead protagonist can react with, with people still living and so on. Tell me about that process. That was a big challenge as well because obviously I couldn't interview many dead people or really do much research on the afterlife, right? So I, I, I did hang around cemeteries. I did, went through a period where I visited haunted houses, never seen a ghost still, and I, I don't particularly want to. So that, then I kind of, I had to borrow from mythology and there's, pl look, there's plenty of yeah, philosophy, mythology on the afterlife, especially in Eastern literature. 
But I think the epiphany came to me um, sitting in a visa office or sitting in a parcel office in Sri Lanka. And I just realized that this idea of, and it's, you know, it's not an original idea, I've seen it done before, the, the, the afterlife as an office, as a kind of waiting room. And I realized maybe that makes sense that the afterlife in Sri Lanka is as disorganized as a passport office in, in the mortal world. And that's why these dead souls are like, they have to get a piece of paper signed at this floor and then they've got to get their sins registered and they have to go through all this bureaucratic process before their seven moons in order to go to the next place. That just seemed like an absurdist idea and it appealed to my sensibilities that you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for satire. So once I had that, I kind of worked on the idea of the afterlife as bureaucracy. And so everyone has seven days, and in those seven days, they, they have to make peace with their, their past and their sins and whatever hang-ups they have, and then move on. And this is being, you know, in the Bardo, it's part of the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. And also, just keeping it to seven moons means I didn't have to explain what... Because the light is a ubiquitous uh, concept. In most, you, you get this in near-death experience, even in yeah, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea of walking into the light. So I thought, yeah, okay, I can have the light and I can have this seven-day bureaucracy where this guy is kind of trying to get his form signed so he can move on. And yeah, so it started from there. And uh, that was really part of the world building. And then you just had to, I just had to have a few rules. But the good thing about not meeting any dead people, no one can tell me that I'm wrong about this, right? So I can, as long as I can make it convincing and have rules that are consistent, then uh, it's going to work. So yeah, I started off with a lot of world building, a lot of rules and all that. I, I really pared it down. Really all you need to know is that you can only travel where your body has been or where your name is spoken. So that allowed Mali also to kind of travel to wherever people were talking about him, which was a good plot device. But yeah, the afterlife is a bureaucracy. The idea that there are lots of these restless spirits wandering around Sri Lanka, whispering bad thoughts into people's ears could be an explanation about why we've had so many tragedies. I haven't heard a better one, yeah. Do you believe in the afterlife yourself? <laughs> okay, that's a big question. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not gonna say that I don't believe. I, like I said, I, I went to these, these um, haunted houses and I took down the ghost stories. I didn't see any evidence of anything. And that's why I think they make the, the point about the only gods worth, worth worshiping are chance and electricity, I think that's, a major theme of the book. Personally, I, I'm, I'm happy to sit on the fence. I'm not gonna say that I know anything, but then again, no one else does. But I think it was a useful device in which to write, write the story from. But yeah, I guess I'll get to verify it one day. Of course, this book could not be more topical, as, as we said, with the protests right now. How do you see the current situation playing out? Well, it's a hard thing to comment on and a dangerous thing to comment on because it changes every single day, every single week. And I haven't, I didn't look at the news this morning or to, I mean, this is a, the coping mechanism we have. You stay away from the news. So look, it's been a hell of a month. It's been uh, three weeks ago, we were dancing around the president's pool and sitting, jumping on his bed. And it was a, it was a bit of a joke, but it was also like quite a profound moment where the entire country mobilized and got rid of this feared family that was uh, you would not speak bad of so so we had that moment and then um, now we have a new we have a new president not a particularly new president and not everyone's happy with it but i think at the moment the mood is 
look, we can't play this Game of Thrones, you know, the country is in economic crisis and we need some grown-ups in the room sorting this stuff out, negotiating and making sure there's, there's petrol and gas and making sure that the food and the medicines don't run out. So this, is, this transcends politics. So I think that's, there's a weariness because the protests have been going on since March. And um, so there, there is a, a thought that, look, we have to just make do with what we have till the next election. It's not ideal by any sense. But there have been a few disturbing signs, though. I, we've been noticing there have been arrests now of certain members of the Aragalea for speaking out. And um, that's a bit of a sinister edge, which is not... So that's the thing. This, this could change. And who knows? But at the moment... People are just getting on with, with living and, yeah, standing in the queues, getting petrol, securing supplies for their family. And, and so I think people are preoccupied with that. And this is an economic crisis. So a political solution is one thing, but we really need economic solutions. And we need short-term solutions to make sure we can get through the end of the year without supplies running out. And, of course, we need longer-term solutions that make sure that this economy, which is... It's really unforgivable this country is blessed with so many resources and everyone who's been here can attest to the fact of what a beautiful paradise it's, it looks like, but yet we find ourselves bankrupt. We haven't been able to sustain, you know, manufacture or grow enough to sustain our own economy. So these are long-term things that need to be looked at by people much brighter than me. And I hope they are looking at that at the moment. But at, the, at present, you know, we've had, we've had this wonderful revolution and now we're having sort of a the backlash against it so it's the story just evolves every every week so who knows how it's going to turn out but um, i'm hoping that sanity prevails and yeah we have some stability restored and uh, at least we can I, I, people are ready people are people know that it's going to be a hard road ahead and it's going to take a while so i think we just need that leadership to marshal that and keep us united at the moment it's better than what we had but we're still choosing from the same 225 politicians that presided over the crisis, so it's not ideal. But um, I would say we, we, we waver from hope and de- between hope and despair. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the mood in Sri Lanka, really. Sheehan, I think that there's every possibility that we will meet in person over the next couple of months because, of course, you've just been long-listed for the Booker Prize if you're shortlisted, and indeed, if you win, I'm quite sure you'll be here in London. How does this, uh, how does this recognition by the world's premier prize for, for fiction writing feel? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I mean, being long-listed, is, uh, that's fantastic enough. And, um, and look, I've, I've been involved... I've, won some awards I've also lost far more not been shortlisted for many so I I, you know you you know the game there's a lot of there's a huge element of luck and taste and everything that comes into it so yeah when when you get when the dice rolls your way and you get a long list yeah you're ever so grateful and for sure me and my agents and my publishers are milking this for all it's worth but look the reality is in September I think it's seven to six you know so I may not make the cut but that's you know, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for this moment. It, it's, it's kind of strange in our household, you know, I, I got long-listed and my wife got a full tank of petrol. And uh, a friend turned up yesterday and said, congratulations on the full tank. And by the way, well done on the, on the Booker Prize. So, I mean, he was, he was, he was being ironic, but uh, the, the full tank of petrol felt like almost as good an achievement. Uh, but no, it's, look, it's wonderful. And we've wor- I've worked very hard. We've worked with Natania Jans at Sort of Books on the manuscript for so long. But you get to a point where you set it out into the world and you kind of think, okay, 
I hope someone likes it, but even if they don't, it's okay, I did my best. So I kind of made, got very zen-like with the manuscript because it's been around. So yeah, this is wonderful. Let's take it a step at a time. I'm, if it ended now, I'd, I, you know, I'd, I'd be delighted. It's, um, yeah, it's still in these dark times. And I think you know, I've got a lot of support from Sri Lankans who say at least it's good to have, have some good news during these times. She had very, very good luck to you. And I sincerely hope we do meet in person at the uh, announcement of the winner. That's The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. It's by Shihan Karuna Tilaka and it's published by Sort of Books. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Maya Renfer. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud, or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.